0: This episode is brought to you by the Chronicle Protocol, a cost-efficient, transparent, and decentralized oracle. Chronicle has developed a next-generation oracle primitive called Scribe, which reduces oracle gas fees on L1s and L2s by over 60%. You'll hear more about Chronicle later in the show. The product you already know and love just got even better. If you are stressed about managing your on-chain portfolio across different wallets and different chains, I'm super excited to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio, which lets you manage all of your crypto across networks and wallets in one place. Do more in Web3 your way with the MetaMask Portfolio Manager. You will hear more about them later in the show.
1: Uh, Welcome back, everyone. We have... Two very special guests, uh, two very close friends of mine. Uh, they know, need no introduction. Ben, you've been on the pod. This is what your fourth time now, third or fourth time?
2: Yeah, so I think I think it's the fourth time.
1: Yeah, so so Ben runs Ben runs Parify. Um, he whipped me into shape for a few years, and you know he's still he's still there. I, I you know threw in the towel. Uh, but we have Jason. Um, he goes by Maple Leaf Capital on Twitter. You guys probably know him, and he runs Folia. So. Uh, welcome, guys. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks for Awesome. Um, well, both of you, of course, run Liquid and Private Strategies. Um, you've survived uh, this bear market. Uh, I don't know if we're still on a bear market or uh, we're transitioning out of it. This last week has been uh, fairly interesting. So why don't we just start there in terms of um, what you guys are, kind of what your thoughts are around the recent rally and how are you kind of positioned around that?
2: The past week of, of price action has been has been interesting and not to kind of overly focus on price. I think like the three of us have always focused on fundamentals, users, you know, real use cases for this technology. But I, I do think sometimes you know, price can kind of provide a signal for, um, you know, what's going on in, in the trenches in the market. And um, this was I, I think in some ways, a, a, you know, this move um, was unexpected kind of caught many off guard. And, um, you know, I, I think in large part, it's driven by, uh, you know, the the Bitcoin spot ETF applications that are in that the market's kind of beginning to price in that there's a like high likelihood of approval. And, um, you know, this has been like, as everyone knows, like an eight year journey from the Winklevoss twins back in 2014, 2015. And uh, I believe there have been, you know, several dozen different firms that have tried to apply for spot Bitcoin ETFs have gotten denied. And it feels like we're kind of at or near the finish line with a high probability of this getting across the line in the next, in the next few months. And I think it's, you know, it's impact cannot be understated. I think it's on the same, you know uh, it's, it's, you know, more impactful than having, it it could be, you know, one of the biggest kind of uh, you know, I think it's a somewhat of a watershed moment. And I, I think in finance, you know, format of investment matters a lot. Um, and Bitcoin is still very difficult to access for RIAs, family offices, et cetera. So wrappers so can, can really unlock a lot of latent demand. And I think, you know, the market's starting to reflect that in, in the price. And, you know, Bitcoin kind of tends to lead market cycles. And every 1% that Bitcoin goes up, that's $6.5 billion of, you know, value created. Some of that then rotates into, into alts, it rotates into venture Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be exciting to kind of see, uh, where the price goes in the next, in the next few months. Um, and just kind of, if this gets across the line and it's broader, kind of more intangible impact on the space in terms of endorsing, you know, kind of providing an implicit endorsement of of this asset class.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jason, before I go to you, I mean, I'm curious because all of this is happening while, tech broadly is selling off. I mean Google yesterday had its worst day since March 2020. I think it's down 10%, it's down 2%. Like it Google literally shed 200 billion in market cap. Essentially all of Ethereum's market cap in one day. And so you see it uncorrelated briefly. Uh Jason, how do you do do you compute that into how you're thinking about this kind of rally? Is it a dead cat bounce? Is, is this more sustained? How do you think about all of this yeah, I, in the general market. I,
3: I, I actually don't know because I was I was looking at the chart. Um, I think I think Bitcoin had correlated with gold for the past a month or two, so we might get a little bit of that. And then the entire space they sort of have both correlation to Bitcoin and the tech space. But since Nasdaq kind of shed the bed, it kind of underperformed Bitcoin. But there are a host of other reasons. Um, I was sort of hoping that you know. 10 years now five 5%, 5%. I was sort of hoping that there's a broader risk off and people buying bonds. And then that kind of lifts equity and just sort of give the altcoin space a bit of a boost. But I, I don't have a really good read on what's going to look like in like Nasdaq or so next month.
2: Mm-hmm. To
3: to, to actually Ben's point by the way, like I, I think Bitcoin trades like a highly correlated thing. It trades like um it trades like a gold stock with a catalyst, is kind of how I viewed it the past, you know, month and a half. Where um and I think you have a bunch of capital that actually came into the space that is not like crypto native. You did you did see USDC market cap stabilizing, and you saw sort of USDT market cap increasing all while during mid September, where it's kind of starting to look like this is going through. Um, and to also echo Ben's point, I don't know this is like a this is like a real pump where um, I think folks are starting to realize. I think James Sefford talked about it in his like podcast a while ago, which is like twenty percent of hundred trillion dollars is retail and 80% is institutional. And even if retail aped aggressively, like the institutions are just not there. And if they're aping through Bitcoin ETF, it's obviously a huge deal. So mm-hmm. I sort of felt like there's a bit more to go, you know, even in gold. And if there is a rotation, if like Nasdaq dust bounds and gold sort of stabilizes and I mean I think the whole space could really participate, especially when Bitcoin goes through with the ETF.
1: Yeah. I mean you're you're more focused on on Asian markets. Um, and I think it's fairly interesting what's going on in China. Um, and I think you—they've—it's know, been hard, right after the opening. Like you would have thought that it would have been a much bigger bounce. I think a lot of people were expecting that, and it hasn't been the case. Um, what is the sentiment out there? And do you have do you pay attention to like flows, particularly in China or in Asia, like in Korea and Japan versus uh, you know Western Europe or the U.S. And how that might be a le- leading or lagging indicator for kind of interest.
3: Yeah, I think China's been easing for a while, like to macro wise. And there's a new piece of news that I think we need to study, which is uh there's like a pretty massive capital injection just very recently. I-, I think it's like uh I don't know, it's like one trillion or something that's injected. Uh that's that's like a move of the balance sheet of the local government and central government. And then there's like another two point seven trillion that's like Sort of, they're pulling back. They're pulling the budget from next year's budget to this year in spending. Uh, I almost view it as uh, a BTFP of some sort. It's like a similar flavor, but very different. Um, in terms of just crypto capital, I think a lot of funds have pulled back, just like they bit in the US. But there are some market exceptions where, in particular, there, there are like two or three parties that we see a lot that got fresh capital and they're depress- like deploying aggressively. Uh, one of them, for example, was the ABCDE of Dujun from Singapore. I mean, those guys sold their business of 4B to Justin Sun. They backed like two, 3 tri- uh, billion billion, did himself. You know, interesting information. Before they sold it, they moved a bunch of retained capital from 4 balance sheet to themselves. So it's like massive dollars of which they are aping themselves plus putting some to use in, in, in deploying the venture. Um, I think sentiment is generally pretty good because whatever's left over kind of it's after they all got crushed by the Chinese government like two, three years ago. And then there's a bunch of 2C apps coming out that they are kind of who's strapped or getting funded by whoever's left over. So it's, it's like not as bad, I think, versus what the U S was six months ago.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to Ben get your perspective uh, and then Jason as well, in terms of how you're positioned, uh, how you were positioned perhaps over the last, you know, nine, six months, uh, in terms of both of you are trafficking in liquid and illiquid stuff in early stage, um, and so how how are you kind of thinking about that and what you're seeing in, in both of the different markets?
2: Yeah, so I look, I I think it's it's very much a a have and have nots market in the sense that there is a lot to be excited about. Like I think tokenization is of real world assets has been a big theme. Identity on chain you know, different types of infrastructure, you know, layer twos, MEV, zero knowledge proofs, wallet as a service, all of that. There's a lot getting built there. And I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, the UX of using blockchains has improved over the past three, four years since since we all met. Um, it's kind of happened quietly, but it's just easier to do stuff on chain now. Uh, so, th- you know, we've been just focused on, you know, really those areas. Uh, i I think that you know the the universe of liquid names when you kind of break it down the one and a quarter trillion dollars of liquid market uh cri- liquid market crypto, about 900 billion of that is Bitcoin and eth which re- really is kind of just a form of beta about a hundred billion of that's stable coin so it's not really investable so you're kind of looking at like a, a you know a quarter trillion dollar investable market and you kind of double click into those names and you know, the vast majority of them, I, I think, are kind of quasi-uninvestable, um, but that doesn't mean there aren't kind of diamonds in the rough and things that are emerging with really strong kind of product market fit and and uh, unit economics. You know, we were looking at some of the core kind of DeFi names two years ago versus today. Um, so, you know, if you look at like you know Uniswap, MakerDAO, Aave. Um, synthetics, you know, uh, uh, DYDX, GMX, et cetera. And just like, look at basic metrics, like, you know, users, uh, TVL is an imperfect metric, but depending on the metric, but, you know, kind of total, like kind of economic value flowing through these systems and look at that relative to valuation. Um, you know, if you like DeFi a couple years ago, you know, by definition, I, I think you should, you know, be, be more interested in it today because fundamentals are better and prices lower um, so I, I think there are interesting idiosyncratic things in liquid markets, but you really have to to look hard to find them and really dig in. It's, it's, it can be frustrating because, you know, we can look at 20 different liquid tokens and just not get there on any of them. Um, well, cause they, they, they might not even
3: outperform ETH, you know, on a way up uh, through a cycle.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think ETH and, I mean, ETH and Bitcoin, uh, have generally outperformed, Uh, you know, the, the longer you zoom out on the chart, uh, the fewer things that have outperformed them. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think, and then when you adjust for liquidity and then the idiosyncratic risk of investing in like a new, new project, uh, you know, far fewer things kind of have, have outperformed them, you know, liquidity adjusted, risk adjusted. So I, I think it's a great market for asset selection, but it just takes a lot of work and, um, uh you know th- th- but there's a lot to be excited about and I, yeah i know i think we're gonna probably talk about like tokenization and other things like that later because i i think that's that is could be like one of the next big themes that um bring us to to the bull market
3: and by the way for those that don't know like ben and santiago were literally the, the two people that were super instrumental in bringing fully to like existence and then like without these two like we wouldn't even exist like, so
1: um, so well, we wanted to hire you, Jason, but you were too good. And I said, you probably should just run on your own. And uh, look, I mean, I, I think the strategy, just as a kind of a tangent, we felt that st- probabilistically, there should be more teams com- coming out of Asia. And you have to know the language. And we weren't. We were, we had that thesis and, you know, Dragonfly was, we were close to them, but we just felt that there needed to be more capital. Like just statistically speaking, there needs to be just population wise and developers. Like there's a ton of talent there. And, and you know, you've you've identified in short order, scroll, step in. I mean, those two alone, I mean, I think as an investing firm, you have to have one or two wins. For us, it was like Ave early on and then Kyber, and we were just really into DeFi. But look, we were super... We benefited from a catalyst, like you, I think Compound launching liquidity mining detonated this whole bull run of DeFi. Um, you could have argued synthetics like had pioneered that model, but no one was paying attention. Yeah. But even after Compound launched, you had really six months to to pile into the trade. And so I think that that leads me to my question, which is: as we talk about Bitcoin and ETH being perhaps really strong as a catalyst like you have the ETF approval for for potentially both certainly for Bitcoin first what is the catalyst for going out farther around the risk spectrum and saying I want to find a diamond in the rough Ben to your point versus just sitting on Bitcoin and eth and just you know waiting for a catalyst to emerge and then deploying in size into whatever hot is it gaming is it social five which I know Jason spent a lot of time in but like you have you have time to Historically, you've had time to to pile onto these trades, and I'm not sure you get rewarded on a risk adjusted basis by being super early, even though it feels great. You know, like, hey, I was super early. I was here. I was the first one. I'm just kind of curious, Jason. You
3: know, I I think apps are harder because, like, even though I still front tech through a deck, which I'm like, I got to get this out because it's going to get a lot of traffic. I mean apps you just if you if you miss the mark you just kind of die and it doesn't matter if it's in that vacuum. So so I I sort of and apps are so um if they use Pon, like Ponzi as a user extra like they just they just die even faster. Um so if like it, it's even more true, like Essentially what you said, being early is like being wrong. This is particularly true. Um and just the uh, other thing as well, like I think it's harder for Ben is, than it is for me. Like I think his firm is 10 next the size of ours. So whether or anything, it's, it really leaves a market impact, we can still kind of navigate. I think my play has always been like when there's an up market, my, my beta, like my cash is Bitcoin. And I, I do tend to think there's a catch-up trade um, in if, ETH, especially if NASDAQ bounces and Bitcoin ETF goes through we will go towards ETF potentially going through, and the deadline there is May 24th of next year. Uh, at some point, it's going to do the same BlackRock trade again. So, I, I'm and ratio, everything is sitting at support. I think we're, we're going to have a catch up there. Um, the next narrative, I, I just given where I sit, I think I really wouldn't count on an Asian team that came from Web2 building infrastructure that Vitalik's going to like. Um, they just don't have the culture and background and knowledge and just kind of like. The chops to do it but they are very pragmatic in terms of picking what works and then just wrapping things together um and i'm generally pretty hopeful of these guys figuring something out and the cost of building something is one third of it because i'm looking at like three front tech forms just to give you an example we might not be the best at putting things together as the first iteration but the cost of building something next after it with some improvements is like one-fifth the cost and we can do it three times as fast so like uh, one of the sort of founder of these teams are telling me like, dude, like what Frantek is fucking build, uh, we could whip it together in two weeks with like less than hundred K in Shenzhen. And if it works, we're going to just keep doing it. Uh, uh, I-, I think I think the West would be a little surprised by kind of how quickly these teams will spin up and just take their idea and just put a token on it and just like run aggressively with it. Um, social is a little different because it's social that community still matters. But for some of these, app like products, it's just gonna really come to market. And I don't think we get that many of them in liquid investments. Uh to, to the extent that we do, at decent FTB will ape in. But to those that don't, I think the only way to do it is to sort of the investments, which is why we
1: want to have I mean you've had like the, the half-life of, of these projects is is shorter, especially when you don't have new capital coming in. Um and if you don't have new capital coming in, then it's it's really like a PvP, right? It's just sort of like a, a rotation and a zero sum game for a lot of these projects, um, and like a lot of the rotation goes back to Bitcoin and ETH. And so, Ben, as you think about scanning the universe of liquid tokens, or maybe uh, you know, a, a early stage investment, how do you think about that relative opportunity cost and trade? Um, and and just out of curiosity, like. How many like private deals have you done over the last like three months versus just sitting on on beta? And you're saying, look, relative to the Nasdaq, like Bitcoin and ETH have really been crushed, and you could say and warrant that you know it's just it's just good than to, to sit um, on on majors right now.
2: Yeah. So first of all, um, I, I would I would echo what what Jason said in terms of. It's been, one, I think, one of the biggest surprises of 2023 has, seen, has, has been Ethereum meaningfully underperforming Bitcoin. Um, You know, year to date, uh, Bitcoin's doubled, Ethereum's up 50%. So that, that's, you know, two, kind of 2x the performance. I think people think about both of them as beta, but they're actually like very different types of assets when you really drill into it. You know, like digital gold and, you know, an internet native kind of computer, they have different kind of fundamental drivers. I think that's been surprising to me. I I maybe wouldn't have predicted that. But so I think like the type of, the way you define beta or like kind of like liquid large caps, like that can be, there's a lot of nuance in terms of how you're you're allocated there. Um, But look, I I think to answer your your question, um, back a couple of years ago, like these seed stage crypto deals that, you know, we were looking at, uh, we were all looking at, we were like 30 to 50 million dollar FDVs and uh, you know uh, they would list a token, it would it would trade at a couple billion dollars with a really low float. Um, you know, many investors would exit, they would never reach product market fit. Some investors may make money. I mean crypto is a rare asset class where you can invest in things that don't work and still make money. That doesn't work that way in venture. Beautiful. You actually have to
1: find product market. Well, it it worked in venture until rates went up, right? (laughs) And unit economics started to matter. Well, well, you got marks, right? I mean, I guess
2: you got marks, or maybe you got acquired by a SPAC or you IPO'd without any, like, without good unit economics. But eventually, like, there was a day of, and maybe you could sell before the day of reckoning came, but you had to time the market, right? Right. Um, So, so, yeah, there is an element of that. Uh, yeah, that's probably fair. I I think right now we've seen, uh, you know, the valuations we're seeing are are more similar to 2019, 2020 um, when, um, you know, like Santiago, like when you and I did a lot of the the better deals at Parify in terms of just like the valuation and the entry points. And I think the app layer to Jason's point, the moats at the app layer I mean, they're really. I mean, it's they're they're really weak. They're very tough. I think the moats are much stronger. The further you dig down in in the stack, layer ones, layer twos, more core infrastructure, things that things that are less less visible, where there are stronger network effects. Maybe you know, customer acquisition costs are less less maybe less relevant. Um, and we were looking like you know at some data. Like let's you know roughly kind of four to five thousand DeFi projects have been launched over the past few years. And we could probably count on like one hand, the the number of projects that like we all have kind of confidence will exist in like, you know, the next few years, maybe two hands. Um, so it's like the survival rate's very low. So this is all to say that I think the expected value of seed stage investing, if we can get into deals at 10 million, 15 million FDVs, that, could make, that that does make sense, but I think you have to build a lot of granularity and diversity into your portfolio, just with the understanding that you're going to be wrong on a lot of different things. Um, And so, and they're going to be power law distributions and kind of in terms of those, those return profiles. Um, And so that's been kind of the, we've been much more selective this year, much, you know, I would say um, more valuation sensitive and also more structurally sensitive in terms of, you know, Governance, information rights, kind of terms and, and structure of, of the investments. I think in the pr- prior cycle, people overlooked things like you know investing in tokens, but disregarding kind of potential terminal equity value, or investing in equity but not getting access to tokens. And I think it's important to have you know alignment with teams across you know the full kind of capital structure of where, where value could accrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, just the last observation on on my side, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are, if you guys would agree with this or not. But I, I think a lot of the companies, or a lot of the, um, sorry, a lot of the the DAOs that have issued a token that have some sort of fee model and are buying back a token, and you could run a DCF on it. A lot of those probably would be better served as just SaaS companies rather than than you know having a token and being a DAO. So we've been, you know, I, I think. We've kind of been t- chatting with different teams about it doesn't make sense to kind of retire your token and issue token holders like equity on your cap table and just run a normal SaaS business and not have the cognitive load of having a token that is volatile day to day and can be a distraction. So we've been probably more focused, a bit more focused on just like the equity side, like backing great fintech and SaaS companies building for the crypto end market. Without the distraction of a token. And I think there's probably more, you know, I, I think on the margin, a bit more opportunity there than maybe in, um, you know, in token land at, at the moment.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I, I think when you, when I hear you say that, I think about Uniswap and uh, look, I mean, full disclosure, we, we were investors of Parafy and Uniswap, like universal. So you have equity in Uniswap. You also get a token that corresponds and maps out to whatever the company gets in terms of the, say, 40% of the token supply goes to equity holders, and then you get your pro rata. Um, And now it's sort of, people are looking at that in the context of now the company itself issued, hosts the front end, and the front end, if you're going through the front end, it's a 15 basis point swap fee. And look, they're going to generate 20, 30 million bucks this year. I mean, yesterday alone, they generated 500K in fees. So that was pretty interesting. Um, Metamask is another example, you know, which is run by Consensus, which is, to your point, another, a different example of a company that is, you know, a studio and has put out a bunch of different products. Um, yeah, sorry, it's 500k over the last week uh, for, for Uniswap, but still, it's significant. Um, the question is, should Uniswap have a token and then equity too? And people are kind of confused around that. Uh, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I, I still think the tokens, are great coordination mechanisms. The problem, of course, is running a DAO is incredibly hard. And I think people are really waking up to that idea that, I mean, God, Ben, like trying to get people to vote on Maker was just pulling teeth, especially when you had to get stuff voted in, like in 24 hours or the protocol is going to go dead. <laughs> like, You know, you had to corral these votes and it was really tough. So where um, you could argue if you made investments in stuff like fire blocks or, you know, Anchorage or some of these core business, picks and shovel businesses, which are just purely equity. It's just, you know, people tend to love those businesses, especially traditional venture firms that came into the space late, love that stuff. Um, but again, you don't get the liquidity. You don't get all the other benefits of a token. So I'm actually not really sure what the answer is. Jason, I don't know if you have a view uh, in terms of how, like, if you have a preference of what to invest in and at what layer.
3: Well, I I think I think generally there are just not that many good good infra companies or SaaS companies in the side of the world. And I, I would blame it on there are just no SaaS <laughs> business in China because that's the space I looked at in the past. Um you either have really shitty like SMEs focused SaaS or you have large like corporate mostly facing government and this, the customization basically eats away the margin. There's no standardization. Uh I generally felt like most companies in a space is poor. so selling SaaS to them is just even worse than pulling teeth in china a lot of times uh so we 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 haven't we haven't really done that much there and now the thing is i I think i agree with both of you which is for real SaaS businesses like this that have a moat i mean there's no reason why they should kind of get a token like running a public company is no joke and listing a token is that and they're probably better off listing in nasdaq at some point and then getting a gangbuster not so much these days but gangbuster valuation if, well, while they can um for the apps and for most of the ecosystem folks that i look at um we really think of tokens as pseudo equity and these are for businesses that have like you said a shorter shorter shelf life if they were to get listed in nasdaq well first of all they might not even get listed because they could be you no know. but even if they even if they do like the wall street are gonna be like it's not sustainable five times earnings thank you very much uh, but in crypto land, uh, not only do they get listed, they get massive valuation because people kind of tend to extrapolate how profitable these businesses can be and give them like 50 times earnings uh, at the first time when you see them. Um, and the lockup schedule generally tends to be shorter uh, <laughs> than when these businesses run their course. So it's like, I think that ARB is fantastic. Um, and I think it's particularly well suited for especially application businesses that tend to grab eyeballs for these DAU. And they are the same buyers of these tokens. Um I kind of feel like this is the arp that we're gonna see a lot of the next cycle. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, one, one thing just thinking about one thing I've always struggled with is um uh is is like what is the right kind of PE multiple for uh you know like a DeFi network? And I mean there's been so much volatility in multiple, like if you look at you know, MakerDAO it's traded everywhere from like eight times earnings to like 200 times earnings. Trailing. And to, yeah, trailing or run trailing, rate. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, and it, it, there's a big difference if you look at like trailing 12 months versus like last three months annualized versus run rate versus kind of like forward earnings. Um, so there's like volatility in earnings, there's volatility in the multiple. And, you know, we like, we can all agree that protocols are unique in terms of they're like, there's no CapEx, there's no OPEX. So they tend to run it like, or there's very low OPEX. So they tend to run it very high, kind of, they have very high return on invested capital. They have software like unit economics, and they can grow incredibly quickly, incredibly capital efficiently. So like from that angle, they should have, you know, they should trade at very high multiples because your your multiple you trade at should be a reflection of, of, of many of those factors. Now, on the other hand, they're very difficult to manage and governance is confusing and people get lazy and don't contribute. And so that would, war- and then also some of the moats for these are, are lower. So when you're running your DCF predicting like T plus five earnings for one of these networks is, is totally, it's, it, there's a, a massive variance to that range. And so you have a higher discount rate on those cash flows and therefore your multiples lower. So you can kind of make arguments for both sides, but, and, I don't think anyone really knows the answer to this question. And it also comes down to like, what is the application you're looking at? Cause like friend you know, I think has done, you know, what 20, $25 million of earnings over the past couple months, months um, or, or protocol fees. And, you know uh, so it's like, what is, what is the right multiple for that type of application versus something like, you know, GMX versus something like, you know, Aave. And the answers could be very different. Just like, you know, in the same way that if you look at you know public equities, you know tech trades at very different multiples than you know the energy sector, which trades at a different multiple than CPG, et cetera. So it's still a big mystery. I just don't think we have enough time or data points to really know the answer to where these yeah. things should trade.
1: I mean, it took it, it took a long time to formalize valuation methodologies in public markets, like EBITDA and free cash flow, and like it took a while. Do you ever think that you're over intellectualizing? Like, look. I hear you. You look at Maker. Because the cynical argument here is, do these things, do people trade on, do these things trade on fundamentals? Or is this sort of an attention meme factor and people are going to punt the latest novelty? And And I bring this up, Ben, because of course, look, there was a very strong argument that DeFi, which has been in a bear market long before even Bitcoin and ETH started to go down, People moved on to gaming and NFTs, and if you look at the DeFi charts on an ETH kind of ratio, it, it's gotten crushed. Meanwhile, you have a lot of Lindy, you have enduring, stronger moats for core DeFi protocols, Maker, Aave, Compound, even synthetics. Like, like there, there's just a a very strong argument on a cash flow basis. The question is, how long are you willing to wait for that thesis to run through? while the market is just ripping in your face other stuff and people, I mean, do you ever see a comeback? And what's your time horizon? Because it's really tough. I mean, it's 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 tough to kind of see that.
2: Yeah, so um, I, I wish I had a better answer to this question, except for I, I just, I, I well, get, I like I get a lot of things wrong. And I, I definitely, um, look, I, I think that as you, as you extend your holding period and your time horizon, I think, Mark, the natural gravity of an asset price tends to bend towards fundamentals o- over time. Um, but the market can ignore fundamentals for uh, short periods of time, even long periods of time, uh, if there's if there's not a catalyst. And also if the, you know, So I think storytelling is, is really important um, element of even public equity markets. Right. It's not like, you know, Google's fundamentals post earnings, you know, changed, you know, like the the actual swings in 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 market cap, like in real time, like the market was kind of adjusting to like a new narrative. And so I do think storytelling and things like that will always matter in markets, as will fundamentals. I think right now in crypto, because it's so early and because people don't you know, are still getting their arms around like what is the right fund like? What is the right metric or KPI for these different networks? Even understanding and agreeing upon earnings can be very challenging. Like if you ask three intelligent crypto investors what the you know how much um, you know earnings um, Ethereum is doing or MakerDAO is doing, they may give you three different answers because there's no there are no gap financials. There's no generally accepted accounting principles that standardizes reporting. Uh, and so like, you know, fundamentals can be very subjective as well. Um,
1: all the more interesting, because I agree with you, there's no like accounting, there's no like SEC, Edgar SEC database you can go to, but you can see in real time, the earnings of these protocols. It's, it's pristine data. It's not tampered. It's not like adjusted EBITDA bullshit. No, it's like they're producing block by block. You're able to see how much, you know, uh, Loans are outstanding, what the activity is, a user retention, like at a wallet level, like you can do very granular analysis. um, And, you know, but anyways, uh, uh, Jason, I want to go to you because you want to say
3: something. No, the two things I would say is first thing is I I do think even in public markets, the things where uh, when there's no framework, the valuation tends to be all over the place. And then secondly, when the corporate governance is crap, uh, the the valuation tends to be all over the place, often at a discount. I think that can kind okay. of be applied to crypto, which is kind of like, yeah, it's going to treasuries, but like, is that really yours, token holder? Ha. Huh. So, so, and those that do, um, assuming there's great certainty, I would think it tends to get repriced faster, like what we see with Maker and a buyback. Um, and the second thing is because the waiting journey is so long, most of them don't have this transfer journey of value capture for very obvious reasons that Garrett Ganson doesn't like it. Um we tend to really only sort of own or trade these things based on uh, the trajectory of earnings growth uh, and KPI, as well as some sort of a catalyst of whether leaving obfuscation or whether, ent- like, ent- en- enablement of value capture. And those tend to work uh, quite well, I think, instead of uh, sitting on it and waiting.
1: Yeah. One emerging narrative here is real world. Oh, uh- uh, real world assets and I am curious Ben I know you want to say something but um maybe we can start talking about what might be the catalyst for some of these things particularly defi as you think about you get a spot etf approval the regulatory landscape clears up you get you know maybe have market participants that are more and more inclined you know we had uh, the head of j p morgan here talking about look they're really excited they're building you know, Ben, you and I were both at permissionless. It feels like corporates, like the interest there hasn't subsided, even though you've had all these blowups. Like they're 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 really interested. I think they see the opportunity. It may take a while, but um, it could be a huge catalyst for for something like DeFi. But you know,
2: yeah. Look, I mean, like tokenization is something that you know people have been talking about since since 2017 with the kind of security token offerings and companies like. T zero polymath Harbor, by and large, like none of those worked. Um, and, um, I think most of those were like, Hey, let's take like an illiquid asset, um, like an apartment building in, in Monaco, let's tokenize it. And like, we'll make it liquid because people want to own fractional shares of, of an apartment building. And like people then realize like, well, Hey, just cause you fractionalize something does it doesn't actually make it liquid. You need kind of demand for those fractional shares. Um, And then I think, you know, by and large, like the industry kind of moved on and stopped trying to tokenize assets for like five or six years because there was so much other stuff getting built in the space. But this year has been, I just, you know, I think a huge year for tokenization. And what's surprising to me is it's really all come post FTX when a lot of, when some institutional interest was waning in the space, you know, you saw Larry Fink basically come out and say... The tokenization is is the next kind of big wave of capital markets innovation. If you ask, you know, like talk to J.P. Morgan, if you talk to you know, Invesco, Wisdom Tree, um, Hamilton Lane, KKR, hey, what are you most excited about in in the blockchain space? I think eight or nine out of ten times you're going to hear tokenization of real world assets kind of at the top of the list, and you know, you've seen so much activity this year you know we count 150 to 200 different team building in this category today with probably like 500 to a thousand different pilots going on kind of behind that that are launching in the coming the coming uh couple of years uh and the you know we kind of putting aside stable coins the uh rw tokenized rwas x stable coins have increased um to about three and a half billion dollars, um, to up from about one point six billion at the beginning of the year in a mix of tokenized gold, tokenized treasuries, um, tokenized LP stakes and funds. Um, so it's you know we're seeing kind of tokenization of traditional assets, and then the other like really fascinating category is like tokenization of kind of non-financial assets. So you saw you know the California DMV tokenized. 14 million automobile titles, you know, you're seeing kind of tokenization of, um, you know, university diplomas, identity, credentials, uh, tokenization of things like concert tickets, tokenization of, you know, litigation finance claims, uh, you know, emerging market receivables, kind of these other assets that are valuable, but don't have the same kind of established capital markets infrastructure that, you know, bonds, equities, currencies and commodities have. And, um, you know, like similar, so so these asset classes that kind of the longer tail that have been neglected, I I, I think are going to be, um, are going to kind of be some of the first assets to come on chain in the same way that, you know, because this is not a great analogy, but in the same way that kind of China, China jumped right to mobile payments. Um, it kind of mm-hmm. skipped over kind of like legacy payment infrastructure uh, I think a lot of these assets are just going to skip over kind of like legacy financial market infrastructure with banks and move right on chain. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot more to unpack here, but I, I really I, I really see this as, as being the only way that crypto will be relevant is if we can tokenize real world mm-hmm. assets. And they're the main substrate that's flowing through applications, pro, DeFi protocols, et cetera. And, Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised if in like two to three years from now, when people evaluate layer ones and applications, the most important metric will be TVL of real world assets. Yeah. Um, As opposed to, you know, when you look at TVL and DeFi Llama of Solana, it includes like staked soul, which is is more endogenous to the Solana ecosystem. It's not really, it's a bit more circular. So, I just think this theme is incredibly important. I'm excited about it. I think there's a lot of momentum and um, I don't think it's going to, I, I don't. it it's definitely like feels like it's accelerating right now.
1: Yeah. The big aha moment for me is, I I was thinking of like Uniswap allowed you to get price discovery on a whole tail end of assets through an AMM model. And certainly there were a lot of skeptics that said a centralized order book model is far superior, but missed the point that you just opened up, there's more, you just create a new market and the ability for anyone to be a market maker. I think the stuff like Maple and some others, I think conceptually makes sense, like centrifuge. But where I have struggled is the general unsophistication of the teams and underwriting risk. They're not professionals. And I think you see time and time again, whereas I'm more excited to see a really solid team Ben, you came from credit at KKR. Like, where's the KKR credit team coming in and saying, "Hey, let's like actually apply and do underwriting and just put it on chain"? Because if you're just like settling these these things in an atomic manner and opening up a capital markets in a global manner, or you know, like a arc sort of permission kind of environment, if you will, settling on a permissionless kind of L one. But that feels to me like a killer use case where you know, even now, like everyone's talking about private credit. And I think companies are, there's a whole tail end of companies that have struggled to get access to capital. And maybe you could do that in a more efficient manner if you turn to DeFi. Um, I just think that there hasn't been like a killer team that is very sharp in underwriting these things because- there have the, been failed experiments, I think, for, for a lot of these kind of like more tech focused teams. But I think you need to, you require like your brain, your your KKR credit brain kind of like on, on, you know, and that's what has been missing of some of these teams, I think.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. But blockchain technology is definitely not a, not a panacea for like bad judgment or underwriting. <laughs> um, like if, if you have a borrower that defaults um, <clears throat> because like their business goes bad, like the blockchain can't, can't solve yeah. that. So and they can't have, so so I I think ultimately like you're actually starting to see a lot of like private credit funds, um, you know just really think about the blockchain as like more efficient rails to send interest payments, uh, securitize, uh, disintermediate kind of like fund administrators and servicing agents and collateral agents. So it's they're kind of doing what they normally do but sitting on top of you know a blockchain for for efficiency.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and transparency too. I mean, I think presumably you could price these things more efficiently and you can measure risk in real time. Like the big aha moment for me, and Jason, I don't want to turn to you next, but the big aha moment for me was, you remember like we we're looking at Nexus and Nexus coverage was grossly under, like it was like the most inefficiently thing priced on chain. Um, and utilization was a big part of that. But the idea that the Nexus team was underwriting the risk of these DeFi protocols just made absolutely no sense. Whereas you could have argued, just let the market decide. And Andre, being Andre, tokenized Nexus, W like coverage, right? And put a wrapper on it and the market was freely trading these things. And and that gave you a much better understand. That was like a CDS. It would have told you exactly what the market, whether you believe it efficient or not, but it was a better mechanism to price risk of these various protocols and i and i and i still think of that as like why haven't we tapped into more of that like it just feels to me like you could price not just digitally native stuff but like a receivable of company in whatever market like totally the 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 key unlock here is there's more transparency it's 24/7 market there's more capital flowing in and out of these things the price should be a better reflection of risk. And that opens up a whole variety of instruments if you do everything on-chain.
0: This episode is brought to you by Chronicle Protocol, the best on-chain source for cost-efficient, verifiable data. For anyone who listens to Empire a lot, you know that we talk a lot about MakerDAO. Well, Chronicle Protocol is this novel Oracle solution that has exclusively secured over 10 billion in assets for maker and its ecosystem since 2017 and for the first time ever super excited to share here that chronicles oracle service is now publicly available for anyone to use compared to using other oracle services chronicle offers a 60 percent reduction in gas fees they have an unparalleled level of transparency at chronicle they offer a dashboard that allows anyone to track the genesis and trajectory of the data it provides, marking this milestone in on-chain data availability. Chronicle is endorsed by a network of the most revered validators, including Etherscan, Infura, Gitcoin, DYDX, and MakerDAO. It is time for a paradigm shift in Oracle development, a future where data is verifiable, operational costs are contained, and the possibilities are immense. You can learn more about Chronicle at chroniclelabs.org. That is chroniclelabs.org. The product you already know and love and have probably used for years, Metamask just got even better. I want to tell you about Metamask Portfolio. If you're like Santi and me, managing your crypto assets across a bunch of different wallets and networks can be overwhelming and it can be complicated that's why i'm excited that metamask portfolio has partnered with empire it's really easy to get started just connect your metamask wallet to get a bird's eye view of all your coins tokens and nfts in one place you can easily buy sell swap bridge and stake your crypto assets at competitive rates all within the metamask app from a vetted list of providers the metamask portfolio lets you do more your way hit the link in the description of today's episode to get started
3: like, is there anything else that gets you really excited and you're like, oh, in the next 12 months, this will hit a billion dollars. And I'm super jazzed about this RWA vertical. Like, is there anything like that today that you think is, is pretty exciting? No, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I,
2: yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Uh, good question. So, I, so yeah, there's so I think like the longer tail of, of asset classes is where a lot of people say, look, like U.S. Treasuries are the next logical thing to come on chain because it's a thirty three trillion dollar market. And, you know, we have 120 billion of stable coins today that pay 0%. So if you can capture 10%, 20%, 30% of that market, that's, that's quite logical. And I think that will happen. But uh, I think the actual, the longer tail is more interesting. There was, there's a team, um, it's, it's actually fascinating. There's a team that's, so if you're a creator on YouTube and you post a YouTube video, like how to tie your shoes. Or you know how to fix your microwave, um, and maybe you have like a few million views, and it's you get you'll get a check from YouTube every month for a hundred to two hundred dollars um, or some amount, right? Uh, based on views and subscribes, uh, so you have these creators on YouTube that are getting paid every month, and uh, that's a meaningful kind of somewhat uncorrelated to the broader business cycle macroeconomy kind of uh, cash flow stream, um, and so there's, there's a company that's effectively kind of going to creators and saying, Hey, we'll buy kind of 49% or some percent of these future cash flows, um, which are kind of modelable and predictable. And so you can kind of take a lump sum up front and then we kind of participate pro rata going forward. And, um, that's, that's the type of asset class. And this is just one example. I think like many of like things that, Don't exist on Wall Street, don't exist in traditional capital markets, but um, are the types of asset classes that could be very interesting on chain because you can kind of get transparency around payments um, that this is basically a securitization. So you can all the monthly cash flows can get kind of distributed on chain. um, And uh, I think and it's
3: almost like the YouTuber issued a a token or it's like their, their company's listed but you're not having a list that you kind of just start buying those. Let's see that.
1: Okay. Yeah. What about uh, like miner rewards or validator rewards? I mean, that to me is, you just look at, okay, if ETH is, the staking rates can be, partic- you, you model out a participation rate and you say, okay, if you're a validator or you're a Filecoin miner, whatever, you're in, you could securitize those and then sell them off, right? And the same with the Bit- Bitcoin miners do this effectively off chain. But you could do this and it could be a huge market on chain.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm surprised that that, because like if I'm surprised that that market hasn't gotten bigger, because if you look at, I totally agree. I mean, if you look at Ethereum, it's a uh, $220 billion asset, 5%, let's say 5% staking yield a year, that's like, 10, you know, $10 billion of cash flows, you may have, um you know, like kind of like effectively like an interest rate swap, but for for staking yield, kind of being able to pull it forward, um, I think is like ext- incredibly logical. I know there are some teams that are kind of working on this, but it doesn't feel like there's been much, uh, as much traction there.
1: Um, as, a, as you say that, interest rate swaps, what is going on in terms of, <laughs> I am still perplexed as to why DeFi rates are lower than TradFi rates. Is that just indicative of, and Ben, I know that you guys play a lot in the credit side of things, uh, stablecoin ARB and whatnot, but how, how do you see that? Um, and I'm surprised that the ARB exists. Uh, is that just indicative of like, no one wants to take smart contract risk and it's just too much friction. You can't do it at scale. At what point are we going to see rates in DeFi be more indicative of just, they should be higher than TradFi?
2: So I... I, I think it's a function. Of, it's the same reason why there's still 120 billion of stablecoins in in, uh, in in that in, in DeFi that are earning zero. Um, uh, it's it's that I think there's captive capital from a regulatory arbitrage standpoint that does not want to re-enter the fiat world, and so there's a glut of stablecoin supply um, combined with less demand to borrow on chain. Given where we are in the market cycle, and that is kind of creating an environment where DeFi rates are lower than than TradFi rates, I think in the past six months you've seen them catch up. Um, if you look at kind of like USDC rates on on Avi and Compound, um, and I think that's in part a function of the the kind of reverse RWA trade, which is now on MakerDAO the die savings rates five percent, um, and you know you can you can kind of like uh, put dye into the DSR, earn five percent, and the reason why this works for MakerDAO is they've set up entities that are taking capital, USDC capital, putting it in, in treasuries, uh, in treasuries like right, five yeah. and a half percent, earning like really slim margin on it. And so, because DAI and USDC are fungible one to one, you fe- like if you look at like lending rates, are kind of converging to that level in um, on on DeFi. Uh, so I, I don't. I think in general we should see relative parity going forward between DeFi and TradFi rates. Like I don't. I, I think initially, like go back to like twenty twenty, the like plain vanilla lending rate on Compound was like fifteen to twenty percent when rates were zero, and it's yeah. because people were like, oh, this is smart contract risk. This is really scary. That as the Lindy played out, people got less scared, and then like things inverted, and I think they're now like i don't think we're going to see my, i could be totally wrong on this but i don't think we're going to see major deep as as much volatility in terms of the difference between tradfi and defi rates going going forward at, at this point yeah. i don't know if uh, jason or, or you would, would disagree with that um but I, yeah
1: in a in a steady state but um, i don't know when we get there <laughs> um what should we talk about next guys i mean we talked about tokenization we talked about defi um jason um uh, You've been a bit quiet, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what are you paying attention to? What are the catalysts that you're seeing? Um, I, I remember, so I'll give Jason incredible credit because uh, as, you know, Breakpoint is coming up in, in Amsterdam, Solana feels like it's, you know, having, having a renaissance moment. I think they've, you know, as a phoenix kind of rising from the ashes, this whole like putting behind the whole FTX uh Sam kind of relation, you know, attachment, unfair, I think it was. And there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of resurgence there and, you know, the sole price kind of reflects that. Um, but we were in Breakpoint in Lisbon, I think it was two, three years ago, Jason, you were starting Folius and and you were sitting on a lot of cash. You just raised the fund. And this is when like every day you had a God candle, right? The market was ripping towards the end, and and we were talking about how you would allocate this capital which felt like it was late in the cycle but you just didn't know when the music was going to stop um and you were incredibly disciplined because you held the line you said I don't want to invest like it just feels like I'm not being paid. like there's just too much risk and i think it's incredibly hard to do that especially when everything is ripping like and now you're in a situation where perhaps a lot of people are sidelined. They just turned the pendulum, as Howard Mark says, swung to the other extreme where people don't want, like they pivoted to the AI, they've sitting in a lot of cash. They say, hey, I'm just going to chill in treasuries and I want to survive. Um, how how are you thinking about allocating, putting risk back on the table and, and getting more exposure because I, I think it is easy, I think to ride the wave up, but it's also perhaps even more challenging, like deciding when to really step up and and buy in size. I, and maybe a lot of people are questioning now. Oh, maybe I missed it. Because by the way, Bitcoin and ETH have rallied substantially since the beginning of the year. So the question is, Nasdaq's turning weak. The market might, broader market may, you know, take a crap. What is that going to do to crypto? I think we've all learned the lesson, for better or for worse, that this is not an uncorrelated asset class. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious. It's,
3: it's a there, there are many factors. Let me just start by saying, like, I think personality play a big part of it. Yeah. So I think some are just inherently more aggressive. I'm more introverted and timid. It's easier for me in a bear market. than... What,
1: bear what it wouldn't appear that way just by looking at your Twitter profile, but <laughs> maybe that's your way of channeling your your extrovertedness. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> the only part of degeneracy for me is on Twitter. Um I think uh well I think public and private are different. I think uh founders at Seed Stage dictated their own destiny is very different. It doesn't almost matter what macro does. So uh, Q two and Q three had been our busiest quarter so far since our inception in privates. Um we wrote our largest check in Q three ever. Um we led deals, we didn't lead deals before. The check size that we wrote in private had stepped up from previously at quarter million, half million, up to like multi-million dollar checks now. Uh, we are planning to raise more capital and be even more aggressive on the private side because we think some of these exposures on 2CN, you just can't get them in public domain. You have to do it private. And because we can now take the whole round and people recognize our brand, we should really press into it. I need one more success to like really cement this reputation, raise a big just corner in our market. That's the plan in Asia. Um and a lot of the focus are around things that can get massive DAU and can benefit from a web through recursive way of growth, mostly Ponzi. And hopefully they'll have a way to cement that growth path. And when it comes to large DAU, it invariably is various type of social entertainment products. So uh, there's no surprise that I, I like where tech is going. I think a social trading app in similar flavor could be pretty big. Uh, we're looking at a live streaming deal very aggressively. We're looking at like casino gambling deals very aggressively. And then on a the gaming side, there are multiple vectors of large DAU categories like mobile FPS, uh, like, sh- like sort of MOBA, uh, like casual games that we're just spending a lot of time on. Um, Ico and our team can speak to that. But I, I think we're going to continue to be aggressive on the private side. On the public side, uh, I think my biggest fear is that the two overhang had been Binance versus DOJ and then the Credit Event in the US. Those two things would send us off. In the worst case, maybe 20 to 40%-ish. In the best case, nothing happens. Um, I think running a fund, we are watching for mark to market drawdowns. Uh, but if those don't happen, or if they were to happen, I think one needs to be ready to buy that dip. Because when a credit event in the U.S. happens, I think that's when QE turns on. I think you need to hold no cash and just go all in in, in risk assets. Um, so right now, we are sort of playing this period where you're riding this ETF catalyst, there's a bit more catalyst left in Eve. going to year end. It seems like the year will be good. So people might want to put on risk into like a end of year bonus across different funds. So the flow could be beneficial. Um, but I think for us, like next year, we're bracing ourselves for a bit of a shock at some point in first half. And when this sort of gun has been shot by the Fed about QE, I think it's just, there will be $0 cash in bonus. It's just purely pick on Eve as cash. Um, and then sort of the deployment into small cap private liquids, um, has already begun. I think we're probably five to 10% into small cap privates. And that percentage is only going up. Um, cause some of these deals, some of these liquid names, uh, have already approached sort of series A and C stage valuation. Um, yep. that's like a whole, what, what, I'm, I'm going to pause there.
2: One question I wanted to get your, your thoughts on Jason is, uh, just the gaming sector, and you know you've had some some really good calls there, as as have you, both of you have, um, you know, Step In, alluvium, etc. Um, what I'm curious about is like, you know, you've seen a lot of Web two incumbents, you know, building kind of games with blockchain elements. You've seen some new kind of gaming studios, and people for the past couple of years have been saying, hey, we're like, we're waiting for like the one game to kind of bring a bunch of users into the space. I mean, do you think that will be like, I I guess, like, do you see, do you kind of see, how do you see the evolution of kind of blockchain gaming, finding product market fit? And do you think it's an incumbent or, or an upstart, um, that kind of is, is the first to market?
3: I can take this unless sense you want to. I'll I'll take it. Um, I think, I think gaming as entertainment form is hard. Get something wrong. The whole thing falls apart. Um, I will also say we haven't seen success yet because the production value itself hasn't even matched the bare minimum of entertainment, quote unquote. So like no one's going to play that crap. Like it's just not fun. You can kind of swipe TikTok. Um, I think there are two types of games that could sort of take off in the next cycle. Um, I don't think any of them will come from large studios. I think it is predominantly a VC backed sort of, Look, it can even come from a single-man shop. One to five people, they figure it out, right? But it's like a sub-20 million investment criteria. And there are two ways this would happen. This would be either um, production value, and by the way, in both cases, production value has to match a bare minimum of of entertainment standards. It has to be somewhat similar to Web2, but it it cannot be that much over because these teams don't have resource, A, and it's easy to overspec with production value, therefore ignoring the Web3 aspect. But once it meets those criteria, two ways this can happen is, number one, this is a very proven category. People know how to play these things. Massive TAM, 50 million DAU. Okay, great. So the, the, the Web3 component comes in and do three things, which is a lot of people in blocked-off countries can play it through stablecoins. Or you know through Ponzi way of acquisition, you significantly reduce your cash cost of acquisition. And then number three, your ARPU your ARP goes up significantly because there is financial speculation. Um, and those categories, I think, by a studio who have done it before in Web2 can handle a DAU and sort of putting the Web3 spin and taking all the elements of Ponzi and speculation and sort of uh, take rates, I think that can succeed. A- and those category namely fall into like competitive games uh, such as gambling, FPS, mobile, and so on and so forth. For example. The other category, uh, I think it's it's all, it also needs to be new teams, but it's something that is just out of left field very new. Like the production value could be lower, but they're just trying something so crazy and different. Um, I have to I have to say Gasier yes, was an example, like the, the um by built by Stefan. Um, SLG itself is a very small category globally, but things like Clash of Clamp people still played it with a very long time span. Now, their insight there is that look, if we if you conquer somebody else's country, um, instead of before where you actually kind of get clout, you actually take their or rights on their people. And what if in this game we all play with money, like real money on blockchain? Uh, we sort of felt like, you know, the, the, the king's equivalent would get so much more dopamine out of it that they might be willing to spend a lot of our poop In that case, I think we could make a lot of money from building this game. And it doesn't have to be like so production value heavy. And then that game itself would not even be like a traditional SLG equivalent. You have to design new mechanisms around it. And it wouldn't take that much to build. I think they they come under like $7 million based on Jerry's forecast. Yeah. And I think those two categories can really hit.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Look, from my vantage point, I think as a general comment, in a bear market, people are very quick to dismiss failed starts or early starts. Um, and it's hard for the market to kind of look at something, maybe it's tokenization, right? You talk about risk harbor and some others. It's real this time. The infrastructure is different. The market's different. And people turn very skeptical. With gaming, I think people look at Axie and look at Step in and look at the token price and say, it didn't work. Like this play to earn category does not work. There is some credence to that because to Jason's point, some of these games were just not fun to play and it was more work. But I do think that um, there's... Two very different kind of games. One is your Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, takes years to produce, very capital intensive, um, which there are teams that are trying to build in that category and layer on some crypto elements, particularly NFTs is really a really powerful wrapper to a lot of this stuff. And the in-game economy, which I would argue a lot of teams have experimented with that, but there's a lot of improvement that could be done there. Um, And then there's a fast casual. The fast casual is actually probably the one that takes off faster. And it, I've invested in a few teams that, particularly from Scandinavia, like Finland, it just, like, this is where Angry Birds came out and it has a very vibrant gaming econ- and, and some really good talent saying, hey, we need five, seven million bucks at Jason's point, And we can do a fast casual, like, um, type of game, you know, like, like, and if you layer on the NFT component to that, it just adds another element where a gamer... If you assume, to Jason's point, you have feature parity, if the experience is very much the same, Web2, Web3, if you're a gamer, you start earning NFTs, it's a small thing, but I think it it does matter. Um, And and you could acquire way more users and retain them. Because mind you, if you look at like gaming as a category has been really like Candy Crush, for instance, like 90 plus percent of their earnings come from like 1% of the users. Which is crazy. And the half life of these games, like look at Zynga, like the vast majority of their games, like just are a huge success. They print like 20, 30 million bucks a month. And then after six months, no one plays them. So, so the retention and the half life of these games is really challenged, um, which I think you sort of assume that's going to be the case in, in Web3. Perhaps you may have stronger retention. And even a marginal increase in retention is enough to really kind of like produce outside wins if you're investing at the right valuation. That's why I'm excited in the category because I fundamentally think that people, particularly now, are saying this is a broken category. You're never going to have a sustainable in-game economy. I'm like, well, how's it any different from gaming, period? Like that's just the category. If you're a gaming investor and you assume that that's, like in my operating assumption, it's always going to be like most of these games are going to have a very short lifespan, half-life, and struggle with the retention, but NFTs really serve. And the speculation of that is a super powerful substrate, like incentive for gamers to stick around. And, you know, I, I just think that that's what the market is overlooking right now because they they have totally dismissed the play to earn category, which by the way, I think is possible to have play to earn if the game is fun. The problem is you haven't had a very fun game, but you will. Now, I'm not saying you should go on and invest in a billion-dollar FTV kind of token. Like, absolutely fucking not. But I'm looking at stuff at five, like a team that X Counter-Strike, X Angry Birds, raising at a $7 million fully diluted valuation, needs $3 bucks. Yeah, I'll and do that know, deal any, any wait fucking wait, day of the by week. By the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, but, but yeah, it, some of these games are going to take time. The other thing is, like, is the infrastructure ready? Um, and you could argue, are you better off investing in a Web two game that can layer some of the elements? Because if if you're if you're a game like Illuvium, for instance, not everything needs to settle on chain, right? You can play the game. In fact, they actually what's interesting from Illuvium, and and you know this is just one example. I think other games are adopting this. Is you know you have an L two find it's cheaper. But you can play the game and not even think about anything crypto related, which I think that the real good games will just allow any user to, on their mobile or on on PC, play the game and then say, hey, you want to cash out your rewards, you want to earn these rewards and you got to set up and automatically with account abstraction, like create a wallet, allow you to, you know, you know, get access to these things. But that's the, I think that the team, the smart teams I've seen say, we're going to build a game. It is going to have crypto to it, but there is a version where you don't even have to think about crypto. That's not the main hook. It's gaming plus, not crypto plus game. I don't know if that's kind of so. Whereas like Axie was like, not the you know shit on Axie, but it was like, we're crypto, like this is a crypto and then add it on with some gaming component, like with some crypto, like with some gaming components. And, and I think the best teams are just very much like gaming experts.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really insightful. I, you know, one, one observation I I've had is, um, you know, like to, to kind of be successful in this category, you have to build a game that people want to play. And then you also have to get the kind of token uh, integrations and, and elements right. And I've been kind of interested in like the more classic games to mitigate that first risk. So things like, you know, chess, Scrabble, Connect Four, um, you know, like backgammon, et cetera cuz like you're not taking any people love playing those games they're the most popular games in the world you can play them online there are huge communities around them um and then you can like kind of get all the benefits of you know getting you know event of, of you know NFTs driving kind of community cohesion and and other kind of forms of value with the token um so i you know i i think we could see you know i've chatted with some of these those kind of gaming teams mm-hmm. um, and they haven't done much with tokens, but I think yeah. that's like the other, the other interesting area.
1: Well, well, Ben, I mean, you're a uh, pretty good at chess. I think you won. Uh, didn't you win this like crypto? Uh, keen, but I,
2: I lost to um, I, I, I won the consolation bracket, which is like, go. I don't want to, you know, I, that's like, it's kind okay, of sad. Um, yeah.
1: But let's envision a, uh, a friend tech kind of version where, you're playing chess and, and you have these points, right? Like what's a, what's a rating? Score? Yeah. Rating. Yeah. Say that you had, could potentially like a cameo type where if you get to a certain point, you could even play and get access to Magnus, Magnus, uh, was it Carson? Carlson? Carlson,
2: yeah. The number
1: one player in the world. Like if, if you had a game that like you get him on board and you could through NFTs, like you could, you could like, toke, you can make it fun, but you can also get access to playing games with like pros and you could settle in stable coins. Like to me, it feels like a pretty, cool thing to do
3: it would be yeah you know? exactly i think the key is not alter the chess itself you know just like if if what exactly I've, I've seen teams adding nfts on top of to chess pieces and the like it becomes your pawn can do certain things if you, i i think it just breaks the game so like hmm. and, and then it's like how do you add what through components i think there's a certain element of negative ev gambling as well as like various type of cosmetics that need to come out on top of it if the game itself cannot be altered um to the extent that you want to acquire users to already play a game on a different platform it would like it will probably have to be some sort of what three ponsonomics because like otherwise the cash spend on these things will be ridiculous because they already have fun playing chess <laughs> or elsewhere you know um it's it's worth trying yeah. but i i i, I um the, there, are, there are things we sort of figure out along the way, which is for different categories, What is what what three components they should in, in incorporate. And in the, in the case of chess, for example, it's like at Ponzi, you know, at gambling, at cosmetics, decorating yourself, and then like make it mobile first. And then just drive aggressively. And then definitely make sure you raise enough capital to put up like a huge price pool, And then out-compete the top ones. And, and like really issue your token to equity celebrities. That's how I would run it yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think if you can build a good community, and I think time and time again, we've seen projects that through NFTs have been able to certainly build good communities. Now, your point around negative EV is a really good one because I am skeptical of a lot of things where as soon as you introduce a price component to that, like if you're buying like a music NFT and then that collapses in value 90%, does that make you hate the artist because you've lost all this money? Like I don't, I think Taylor Swift is perfectly fine without having any financialization to any of the stuff that she does. You can, you know, and and maybe Swifties might hate her as soon as you introduce a price to that. And that may be negative EB for someone like Taylor Swift, but that doesn't mean that all artists are going to experience that same thing. You maybe perhaps can build an NFT without, I don't know, like more of like a, a badge without any value. I think when you try to build communities, I'm really sensitive around as soon as you start putting a price to these things, I'd be worried. Like if I if I were an artist, I would think twice about like having value ascribed to a lot of these things, because maybe the beauty in a lot of these things is not having a real time price component and speculation to it. Um, ben, you brought up Polymarket in our side chat. I know full disclosure, we don't purify, we're investors in Polymarket But prediction markets as a category has been one of those like Augur, you know, when we first met Ben, Augur was like, Augur V2 was all the rage and (laughs) Augur V1 kind of didn't work. It was really clunky, but also you didn't have stable coins. And the minute you have stable coins to be able to settle these bets, it was like a huge unlock. Now, Augur specifically, I think just as a team just kind of was inferior, but then in in came along PolyMarket. And I bring this up because for two things. One, I I want to get both of your opinions on prediction markets. Elections are coming up. There's a whole host of things. I think they're getting some pretty interesting traction. And second, like as as just information oracles, particularly when the Wall Street Journal and other media just have really botched, just there's no truth there anymore. Um, And the second one is a more important theme, which is what are some failed experiments that, you know, in the blockchain space, which is littered, that are worth revisiting because the infrastructure L2s stable coins is just different. And that might warrant you to make an investment in something like Polymarket.
2: market. Yeah. I, so I, you were talking earlier about like kind of letting markets price risk instead of a single human price risk in, in the event of nexus. And I, I, I think that markets and wisdom of the crowds is one of the kind of most powerful forces uh, of truth. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at kind of markets we have today, you know, you can bet on the price of Amazon stock. You can bet on the price of a bushel of corn. You can bet on, uh, you know, the, uh, the the price of gold, currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds. But you can't express financial views around uh, at size around many different markets in the world. And so, what's what's fascinating about uh, a prediction market? is uh, on chain is that, you know, anyone can uh, and just to define what a prediction market is, is it's it's typically like a market that is called a binary market trades between zero and one where people, uh, you know, a, a market will become a, uh, you get paid out one dot one if an event happens and zero if it doesn't happen. So, you know, uh, will, um, you know, Republican will a Republican be elected in the 2024 presidential Election that may trade between zero and one based on kind of the market's probabilistic view of that happening. Uh, so what's what's kind of fascinating is uh, these are really oracles of truth, and um, in in a way that like we really haven't seen in traditional financial markets. These can be used for bets on on politics, bets on weather, bets on kind of coronavirus case counts, bets on. Um, uh, you know, will we, uh, you know, uh, you know, bets on just kind of orthogonal things that don't have have capital markets and they it, it can be used for insurance as well. So if you're a soybean farmer in Iowa, you can make a bet on, you know, will there be less than X inches of rainfall, uh, you know, in the harvest season in, in Iowa and kind of create a market. And, you know, you can bet that, yes, there will be less than that amount of rain. And that kind of implicitly serves as, as kind of a form of insurance. And so I think these prediction markets have been tried before, um, and they are centralized prediction markets, but because of regulation, the actual amount you can bet on them is capped. And also the, um, you're generally taking counterparty risk, right? You're sending your money into an offshore entity, uh, Uh, the amount you can bet on a specific market is capped. Only certain markets are offered as well. Um, So you can't create your own market. And so decentralized prediction markets solve a lot of those problems. And we saw this even with Augur, which had a terrible UX. There were actually several million dollars that were bet on uh, in the 2020 midterm elections, like will Will Republicans or Democrats take a majority of the House? And people were betting in size on this. And it was the only place in the world you could really bet in size on an event like that. I'm a big believer that uh, you know, prediction markets are, I think they've been left for dead. I think they're going to be huge. And I think the TAM on them is, is underrated quite, quite large because prediction markets can be you know, basically an alternative form of a derivative. And the derivatives markets is measured in the um, in the quadrillion dollars, which is, you know, one with 15 zeros behind it. So it's it's really like, a, a you know, I, I think uh, Target's like a very, very big TAM. Um, so
1: how, how do you scale that? Because I think the challenge has been finding account, like the other, finding matching both, say everyone want, believes in one type of outcome, but like scaling these things has been somewhat challenged. What do you attribute that to? Is that just the friction of crypto? Is that regulation or is that just there's a whole tail end of things that you've find it hard to find someone to take the counter trade?
2: Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's a combination. I, I think it's just the fact that um, the, the UX of these platforms isn't great. There may be a few thousand users of of, of poly market in a given day, um, but it's still, even notwithstanding that, it's still like the most liquid kind of market to bet on these things. There's just nowhere else to express bets and find gl- a global market of people willing to take the other side. Um, I think you know there're experiments around hey should we have some sort of like you know AMM curve or should should these be structured as, as a kind of central limit order book or should it be a hybrid so there's some kind of marginal tweaking around how to make these things liquid ultimately you need pe- people to take the other side of the bet so there is some constraint there but as people you know, as the UX gets easier, as people learn about products like this, I mean, just sports betting, I think, is is a huge tam. Um, I don't have the numbers at my fingertip, but tips. But we did a deep dive into this, and the amount of money bet on on sports uh, globally every year is, is is surprisingly large, and it's done through, you know, centralized, uh, uncreditworthy offshore entities. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I imagine like the TAM for, um, other, other kind of non-athletic events could be, you know, could also be very, very large. Um, and that those markets really don't, don't exist today. So I, I, really think it's just a matter of time and auger, I think was an idea that was just too early and it kind of fizzled out, but, um, and I'm not, I, am a confidence in, I think what Poly cha- what poly market has built is, is quite interesting, um, uh, and whether it's them or, or someone else, I, I think this category is going to be going to be quite quite meaningful.
3: Well, I I don't disagree with Ben. The only thing I would say is um, I thought about this. Uh, traffic for these kind of um, tick rate based like betting sites is very, like very high. Uh, when somebody put dollars into a casino, the ARPU is proven to be I don't know. 150 to a thousand dollars per person, thereby driving the customer acquisition costs, cash costs to be like quite high. And for something like Polymark to acquire users, if they do it the traditional way, they face a very typical problem where, um, like betting on the outcome of events it's a very classic constrained maturity, uh, low frequency event. Like it's, it's almost you need a coincidence of want there. It's like, I want to. Either I want to bet on something, I search, or it's like I, I somehow land on a website, but there's nothing I want to bet on. Um, and, and when I say maturity, it's like so usually there's like an end date to these bets. So it like it's constrained by creativity and it's constrained by like how many of these cool things are happening at once. And it's like low frequency because maybe mo- for most people, they bet on these things once or twice a year. Whereby for something like gambling, I mean, people gamble like 24-7. And, and and there's no maturity. They just like they, they start, they end, they lose money. Um, I, I feel like for a use for for a prediction market like this, it's probably best suited uh, under a gambling negative EV gambling site. It, it would make a lot of sense, for example, for Rollbit to have a prediction market, um, so that the people who land on it and already know it uh, would meaningfully increase their ARPU through this subsector. Uh, and that the CAC spend that they have would have a, a sort of a bigger bang for the buck, because even if they don't lend for prediction, they sort of bet somewhere else that the, the website still makes money. Right. Aside from the UI UX, which I completely agree with, I think that's like a big reason none of this shit has worked. Um, and I think whoever takes the crown in the end might be like, a once we solve all the UI UX issues, like on-chain casino, that's like fair. And then with a prediction sort of subsector component to it. Um, personal opinion.
1: yeah I think um the insurance point that you make ben is really fascinating because I think that might be a good angle to get much more traction if you find a person that is thinking about risk at the point of sale say that you all of a sudden get paid in stable coins and you don't know this thing but you could bet on it not depegging you're not going to think about it two days after you get paid But if at the time that you get paid, you have the option to buy some insurance, which might cost you a a penny, that might settle in a prediction market, right? Because you're betting on the outcome that... But you have to think about risk at the point of sale. When you buy a car, you need to buy car insurance. That's by regulation. Uh, Flood insurance, on the other hand, not so much. And people don't buy flood insurance until their house gets flooded. Uh, So it's a much smaller market. And and so, in a similar matter, I've always felt that, like, and we've talked to Stani, like, or Robert, like, at Ave Compound, like, just roll it in. When you're opening a CDP, when you're opening, when you're lending or borrowing, you are taking some risk. That's when people are thinking about it. Well, then allow me to bet on the direction, either yes or no, whatever binary outcome is in a particular time frame. That's when, if you're a prediction market, it has felt to me like that's where you can get some traction on chain. Go to the more edgier DeFi protocols, go to the more edgier whatever, and just make it, when you're buying an NFT, like whatever, just at that time, you have to insert yourself in that flow of when the consumer is thinking about risk because he just made a shiny purchase. Well, insure it. And 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 I think that's where you can get much more volume flowing into something like Polymarket. Um, yeah. And you can just create these markets on an ongoing basis.
2: Yeah, totally. I, I think that's a great point. I, I, the, the other thing I would just mention is like, one of the big issues with insurance is counterparty risk. If you bought an insurance policy from AIG, you know, if you bought CDS on, on Lehman from AIG, well, it's not a good insurance policy. So the beauty of having this on-chain is all of the capital is escrowed. So it's yeah. actually, it's insurance without counterparty risk to the insurer, which if someone's like buying insurance and really think about the downside scenarios, that that's actually like kind of, quite quite important in terms of mitigating- yeah,
1: like, say, say you have like a million dollars in Binance. Well, there's a market in Polymarket that says, will Binance go insolvent at any point in time? Pick your point in time. Maybe you have a perp, but just a point in time. Well, heck, as a fiduciary, you want to maybe hedge your bets. Now, the question is, what's the price of that? And even maybe just the because we talk about here, we ask the question, oh, is Binance in some deep shit or not? Are they going to settle for a billion dollars or not? Who- you know, whatever. Well, as opposed to just talking about it, well, it'd be really interesting to point to a market and say, hey, the market thinks that like Binance, there's a 75-80% probability Binance is gonna continue to live and do that. You know, that that alone is really insightful information. And even at the at the at the wall you talk about privacy, maybe that's a challenge thing, but with better privacy. You might say, hey, there's this very big entity that is betting the Binance. All of a sudden, yesterday, someone bet that it was going to go and solve it. Well, what do they know? And that alone is super insightful when you start like tick by tick understanding which market participants are long or short or, or, or like betting on, on a particular outcome. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. I mean, I'm
2: looking at polymarket market right now. I mean, there are markets, you know, will there be an Israel and Hamas ceasefire fire by uh, November 30th? Um, like these are really, you know, will, who will be the speaker of the house? I mean, these are really like kind of impact, like these, these can actually be used well, to topical, yeah. financial views.
1: Like, what yeah, that? I mean, like expert opinion is like totally overvalued here. Like economic forecasting, like that, it's just like, there's in my mind, there's no credibility to that. Like give me a market and tell me how much volume there is behind a particular outcome. I'd take that over any macroeconomic forecaster, CNBC Bloomberg. Like this is all bullshit. People just talk out of their ass. Like, okay, you're betting a million dollars on on Hamas not like on this ceasefire. Okay. Well, then that's that's different. <laughs> you
2: know? There's there's this like famous story on, on Wisdom of the Crowds about this like yeah. statistician in the the uh nineteenth century that brought an ox to this uh to this kind of like town like to fair. Land, yeah. And he guessed like, he asked everyone to guess the weight of the ox. And I, I think the ox weighed like 1190 pounds. And like the average of the 800 guesses was like 1100 and it was like one pound less. Like, but even the experts, like people that deal with oxes on a day-to-day basis, like they were, you know, farmers, except like they were get, they weren't accurate. It was like the average of everyone's yeah. view that ended up being the most accurate. And, uh. So there's just like a lot of value in in this as, as, as information. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Um, And the, the, you know, the other, the other really interesting thing about prediction markets is uh, some of these market, like markets have actually been disputed. So if you have a market, like what will be the weather in New York city today over, will it be over, over 60 degrees or under 60 degrees? So like, let's say we'll, we'll say the market says, will the weather in New York city be over 60 degrees? Well, Hmm, are you looking at like AccuWeather, Weather Channel? Are you looking at the weather in the Bronx or the weather South Street Seaport? Um, at what time of day are you measuring the weather? Like, there's so much nuance into how these markets are worded that um, uh, and there's and, and that's actually a lot of the centralized prediction market platforms uh, have had major disputes over the wording of these market of over these markets where both sides have thought they've won which is another reason why in a decentralized context, like, and I think Augur actually was really thoughtful around this is there was a whole dispute resolution mechanism and it was all arbitrated on chain, which actually drove value, hypothetically drove value to to the rep token token, um, and made the token actually incredibly useful. If you're to be able to participate in the dispute resolution process, if you're using this as like your kind of core insurance platform is actually quite valuable, and the token does have a reason to exist.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, if someone's cornering the market on rep tokens and has a unfair sway in the votes, it might be challenged. But but you know, a true but, true. But, but then you you start you know layering. Uh, I think it's where you could really see some DAO, high participation, and different mechanisms to prevent. These DAO attacks, which I think the surface area is large, and people are not paying enough attention to it because it hasn't mattered. But it will in a context like Polymarket, if it had a token or Augur, like you know, or even the deciding the outcome of like Uni as a to distribute this massive treasury. Maybe as a parting question, and this is something that we've talked a lot about in various guests in, in Empire, is this idea of on-chain activism. And we it was brought up in the context of look, there are a lot of projects that look block one has more Bitcoin in their holdings than MicroStrategy. Uh, Gollum, there's these uh there are many teams that perhaps haven't gone product market fit, but their treasury is vast. And the question is, what do you do with that? And um how do you think about is this something that you guys are paying attention to? Like activism? How involved are you in like voting? Um and in maybe you know dismantling some of these teams and distributing like there's a lot of value in the treasury and you're saying hey well just dismantle it and distribute the holdings back to token holders like is that something you guys think is I mean activism in traditional markets is is a, is is a thing
2: uh, yeah so I I think that uh, there are, there are some really interesting deep value plays. Uh, in, in crypto, and they kind of all tie back to, um, you know, like there the, uh, where a token will trade at a meaningful discount to book value. I mean, we talked about Nexus Mutual earl- earlier. They had uh, at, at a point earlier in uh, you know, the beginning of the year, they had $400 million of ETH and their token was trading at around $150 million market cap. So it was trading at, a, you know, 60, 65 percent kind of discount to NAV. Um, and you got exposure to ETH price, uh, because the treasury was in ETH, uh, so, you know, kind of as, you know, as well as that kind of discount eclipsing, um, uh, so regardless of your view on the kind of underlying insurance protocol and how many premiums they're going to sell and claims they're going to pay out, I mean, unless you think they underwrote a tremendous amount of bad debt, but even you could kind of quantify that, uh, the the actual like book value was quite meaningful, and I think you could you could build a thesis around that. Um, now the 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 one I think issue with these activism plays, um, you know whether it's like Binosis or EOS or many of many of these teams sitting on big DAOs, is the governance rights of token holders are are limited in terms of what they can force the kind of the quote unquote management team, even though there aren't like official management teams on these networks, but force them to do. And um, as a result of that, um, you know, I I think, I think there are ways, I think there are kind of opportunities there, but you really have to understand kind of the incentive alignment is the team motivated to distribute, to to distribute kind of this value back to, to token holders. Um, And I think, I think that's, that is kind of a critical, a critical thing to, to understand.
3: I'm with Ben there. I think, um, big discount to some of the part stories in traditional finance has been widow makers. The discount just never close mostly because there's no means to recourse and closing that discount. And usually it happens when a, there is a way to close it, which is activism or b the management team actually changed their mind. Um, for most token projects, owning means of tokens means nothing. And unless you can beat them in a submission in China, that means getting central government officials like, grab them and just force them to distribute barring that or sort of IRS knocking the door FBI. I, I don't think there's that easy of no way to yeah. force those treasuries.
1: All this while I'm thinking GBTC and the premium that is meaningfully compressed, uh, which I think the catalyst there was just the market is pricing in a uh, shorter time frame for the conversion of this closed end mutual fund into an ETF and might, uh, and so it should trade at spot, like one-to-one to spot, which, you know,
3: well, in that case, there's both a means, right?
1: Yeah,
3: so enough, and, and and intention because if there is like, we're not going to convert this, this will always yeah. yeah. There's
1: intention plans. and also because if it takes ten years, and the management fee alone will eat into it, and the liquidity will warrant the discount. But I think the market is expecting that within a year, like you're going to have an ETF conversion.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think the other component is like when we measure book value, like what is what are what units is it measured in? For example, if there's four hundred million of of ETH. Or, or like, if there's GBTC, you get exposure to 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 increases in spot prices. Whereas, if you're underwriting a uh, a project that has a bunch of treasury and stable coins, even if it's trading at a big discount, you may underperform just owning tokens if you think the market's going to go up. Um, so so I think like for those reasons, I you know, many of the teams in the space are or have their entire treasuries in ETH and in wrap Bitcoin in, in attractive portfolios that you can basically access at, at a discount.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jens, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, anything else that you want to wrap with parting thoughts, just things that are on your mind?
2: I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to just, uh, just, just tell, tell a quick story about Jason. So <laughs> I, so as I many, that. as many people know, I, um, or, or maybe don't know. I'm not like public on, on Twitter, and for the longest time, people have been like, "Well, who's your alt profile?" I'm trying to figure out who you are, and uh, there was a period of time. There's still it, it still happens actually occasionally where people think I am I am Maple Leaf Capital on, on Twitter. So you know when when Jason's tweeting about about gaming or about DeFi over the years, you know people have DM'd me you know, on telegram or email me, be like, Hey, I love your views around XYZ project in, in, in Asia and China, how'd you get so smart on that region? And, uh, makes me feel really good because I think Jason's views on, on, uh, on Twitter are, are excellent, but, um, I just find it funny that so many people think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Jason. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, that I, I'll kind of like end with that, with that story. Yeah. Um, By the way,
1: Ben always has stories to end podcasts. You're lucky, Jason, because he has told embarrassing stories about my Lego collection and other stuff. So in this case, <laughs> you got off the hook easy, man. Because uh, yeah, he knows way too many stories about me that are embarrassing. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I, I don't have I don't have a cool story, and Ben. I, I hope there are no angry LPs yelling at you because sometimes my tweets are obscene. So, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I I think I'm I think I think I'm. I don't have much of a remark except I think ETH here is a good bet. I think eventually people rotate from Bitcoin ETF to ETH ETF. And I I guess there's a lot of flows negatively impacting that ratio. But like, I think that's like the best risk reward trade I've seen so far this year. ETH. Um, more than anything else. ETH, yeah, currently spot ETH. Um, there, there are risks around like, oh my God, like there's macro, there's like, you know, FTX and Celsius selling pressure. Mm. But like, I mean, this spot here is... I think it's really good. You, you kind of get a clear shot of the ETH ETF, and uh, I don't think people are. I think it's like too too far out that people are not just people are looking at each other. It's like who's going to bid first? Um, but when it when it runs, it's going to run really. Good, personally,
1: yeah, an ETH ETF yeah. that pays out some dividend it's uh, not uh, would be, and it's
3: it's so easy to do. I think you just lend it out to stakers that stake it, and then just in return paying the sort of borrowing. At a similar state.
1: Would you buy ETH, Bitcoin, or just Coinbase, which might benefit from all of this activity? All of the above. Top yeah. out <laughs> answer. I yeah,
2: yeah. I I I'd, I'd agree with that. Um I I think um I guess just like my 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 closing thoughts are, you know, this environment um reminds me tremendously of late 2019, early 2020, it was like right before the Bitcoin halving, it was right before the end of a monetary cycle, uh, valuations in private markets were low. There was, there were many interesting areas of product market fit. It ended up being a phenomenal, uh, vintage in, in retrospect. Uh, and like, to me, that just rhymes so much with today's environment. almost eerily so. And I, I do feel like we are, um, you know, in the early stages of, of a bull market is what it feels like to me. Um, I think it's going to be a more kind of like responsible bull market than the last one. Maybe it won't be, but it feels like there are more adults in the room, more real applications for crypto. The UX has come, come a really long way. Um, and, um, uh, And and I'm I'm kind of just excited about a a lot of things I'm I'm seeing. Uh, I think the uh, and and then look I I think there's still a lot of pain that's going to be taken. And I think I think it is a have and have nots market. And so I think the a lot of the companies that were funded in the last cycle in in like kind of the bull market are um, I think there's going to be a lot of pain to come there in in those in in kind of that peak vintage. I mean you've seen companies like Yuga Polkadot Cut make massive rifts. I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation. And I think that's a good thing. Cause like, if you look at like any given category, like what, like wallets or MEV or, you know, th- these, these categories have far too many companies in them. Some of these categories have 50 to hundred companies building the exact same thing. And so I think that consolidation of kind of companies going out of, you know, kind of getting aqua hired shutting down, that's actually helpful for the whole space. Because kind of it it uh, equilibrates like or recalibrates supply and demand, and it lowers things like customer acquisition costs. It lowers wages. It reallocates talent to a few winners, and uh, I, I'm excited to kind of see that play out. I think you're starting to see it play out um, right right now, and. Um, Someone brought up like a really interesting point in a, in a board meeting um, recently. They said that, look, every startup is either selling um, a vitamin or painkiller. If you think about it, like every company is either selling a vitamin or painkiller. And you really want to sell painkillers. And I think far too many companies in crypto are selling vitamins or selling things that like make a process like a little bit better, a little bit, you know, um, a little bit easier, a little bit faster. But, you know, if the companies that are selling like true painkillers, like one of them is Fireblocks, right? They're solving like a massive pain point for their customers. And I think they can demand really high, you know, high ARPUs as a result of it. And I, so I, you know, we've been just pushing our portfolio companies to like really find like that pain point and then kind of sell painkillers as opposed to selling, you know, vitamins. And I think that's you know i I, th- I think that'll end up um, you know that that analogy that's not my own i'm i'm repackaging it someone mm-hmm. else mentioned to me i think it really resonates with me in this market
1: well on that point um, i had this sort of thought recently which is crypto historically has been a little bit like selling i want to go back to this analogy i keep saying it but like flood insurance the value prop when you go to someone and say use defi the immediate response in a developed market in the U.S., they say, what are you talking about? Venmo and Robinhood work fantastically well, and my Chase app works fantastically well. You go to other places like Argentina, Venezuela, not so much, but it's flood insurance. It's it's when you you are dealing with hyperinflation. It's when you've been deplatformed. I think more... The the hope here is like you talk to artists and they tell you, hey, wait a minute, now I can sell digital art, like full stop. Like I was not able to sell digital art before, and crypto allowed digital property, and then and then I don't have to go through Sotheby's because I can just go through OpenSea or whatever or any other marketplace, and that's powerful for a certain subset. And I think maybe that's the transition that crypto is really going through, which is you stop you stop selling it as as, as as flood insurance I think it is a catalyst when when these you know when, when the world goes into chaos like you know crypto comes in a, into the attention again uh, but I do hope that with more consumer applications it just becomes more of the selling point of crypto is less about rooted in fear and chaos and more in just vast opportunities and much more Ben you you talk about consumer preference and and the amount of benefit that will that goes to the consumer and reduce fees and greater access to capital markets. Like that is massive. And I think the selling point of that touches everyone versus fear. There needs to be some sort of specific event and it's limited, right? You always want to be operating, I think, from a position of endless possibilities like the internet did versus, Hey, this is like a, you're selling, you, 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 this is the world's gonna end. Go buy Bitcoin. People are like, uh, no, man, like chill, like you know. So, I think that that's that might be the the, the transition. I, I think you, you need to see killer consumer applications. Um, so, Jason, any, any, anything else? Any parting thoughts? He's just nodding, saying, No, I'm tired. I want to go to sleep. <laughs> that's awesome gents well thanks so much for coming on uh we'll uh we'll have to revisit this uh later down the road in a couple months but um you you heard it here first you know this starts to feel like the the start of a bull market i I sort of agree with that so appreciate both of your perspective guys Uh, always a treat to have you on thank you